We walked down and down and down and down. We were following the gully path shaped by glacier melt thousands of years ago. The Indiana hills were clothed in paisley patterns of oak and elm and dotted with yellow sunspots across the forest floor. Finally, near the bottom of the hill, we found an outcropping of stone. This great turtle shell of a rock had made for a natural campsite, a perfect place where the Miami and the Potawatomi, the Delaware and the Shawnee had curled up for the night and found shelter over the course of centuries. The sign read that the wooded hills in which we were standing had been totally denuded by European settlers trying to make a go of farming in this wholly unsuitable terrain. Now there's no mention of the native peoples who had been killed in uprisings, slaughtered in wars, or forced off their land in sham treaties in order to facilitate this boondoggle of an enterprise. The most important conservation success of the 20th century ultimately saved this place. We call it the Great Depression. The Great Depression where agriculture and industries of extraction and exploitation had come to a grinding halt and people had abandoned land en masse. The federal government had bought it up and initiated restoration projects with the Civil Conservation Corps replanting and reconstituting a land crying out. I put my hand on that shelf of rock and waves of grief entered my body. My spouse and I were driving back from General Assembly, a national assembly of Unitarian Universalists held each year, and my heart was tender. Tender with truth-telling, tender with grace, tender with courage witnessed, tender with hope and hopelessness as we engaged in the truth of the white supremacist patterns in our denomination and trying in our clumsy way not to flee or to fold, but to slowly chart a different way forward. My heart was tender because I had been gone for two weeks and my mom, who doesn't remember much anymore, still remembers how to feel lonely. And I'm the only daughter who can visit her on a regular basis. My heart was tender because I love to camp. I love to walk trails in the woods and wilderness, and I know this is one of the greatest gifts that my mother ever gave me. My heart was tender because the land itself was asking me to remember, to take stock of what had happened in this place, and to weep. 
to weep for the terrible beauty that is Brown County, Indiana, remembering rather than disremembering, as author Toni Morrison puts it, disremembering in the way signage is worded so history can begin with the courage of the white settlers rather than the carnage of genocide or the wisdom ways of the native peoples. Disremembering that Indiana was once the home of the largest Ku Klux Klan organization in the country and is still shadowed with that history. Disremembering so I can take a nice walk. My body was flooded with grief for myself, for our faith, for our history, and this land that remembers it all. In his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, white author Francis Weller writes, I'm not sure how or when I began my apprenticeship with sorrow. I do know that it was my gateway back into the breathing and animate world. It was through the dark water of grief that I came to touch my unlived life. There is some strange intimacy between grief and aliveness, some sacred exchange between what seems unbearable and what is most exquisitely alive. Through this, I have come to have a lasting faith in grief, he writes. Now, for many of us, grief and sadness is something we try to avoid. I'm sure when you looked at the title of today's sermon on the marquee out there or online and saw Getting Comfortable with Grief, you wanted to make an about turn and head directly to the nearest eatery. It's summer for heaven's sakes, you must have said. Why do we have to talk about grief? I really thank you for showing up today, sincerely. <laughs> and for some of us in this room, grief is your constant companion. Because to be a black or brown-skinned person in this country means your humanity is under constant attack. And mourning comes in all shapes and sizes, manner and forms. As African-American blogger Rachel Ricketts writes, we mourn over the constant inner chatter, like, did that manager ignore me because I'm black or because I'm a woman? We grieve the ability to show emotion without being labeled angry or the ability to simply just be heard, traumatized by you're blowing this out of proportion attitude when calling something out as racist or sexist, she writes. Or the all too familiar grief that comes with one more death of a black or brown skinned person who didn't navigate a traffic stop just right and paid with their lives. For others of us, grief is the baseline, the combination of brain chemistry and anxiety, 
post-traumatic stress disorder or the death of someone beloved that makes you feel as if you are grief. That there is no separation from your being and this heartache. Maybe for you it's a combination of one or all of the above or more. Just being honest, grief is a big, hot mess. On the one hand, some of us need to get closer to grief, and others desperately need respite, a space to breathe. But whatever your context, one of the central purposes of the religious life is to become more fully alive, and that means wrestling with grief. Wrestling with grief is a countercultural move. I mean, everything we are being sold nowadays, everything we are being told nowadays is that happiness is the ultimate goal of life. That somehow, if we can blend the right ingredients of the perfect shampoo, the best workout, the right amount of success, the right relationship, the best sex, the best diet, we will all be happy. We convince ourselves that if we say things in just the right way or avoid hard subjects altogether, if we cordon off our social and racial justice understandings from our real-world interactions, if we disremember in order to get along, then maybe we can avoid all kinds of grief and get back to the business of getting happy. As part of my work, I meet with youth in the ninth grade uh, in the, our coming-of-age program. And we talk about issues of meaning and truth and faith. And whenever a youth sits across from me and talks about happiness as the purpose of life, I have to admit I cringe a little bit. My ninth graders are only parroting the blessings that they have heard over and over again from their adults. The only thing I want for you is to be happy. I think I know why adults say this, why I say this. We are hoping our children can sidestep the blows this life has to offer. But we are inadvertently condemning them to sidestepping a whole life. If the only thing you are wishing for is happiness, you are wishing for a half-life. There is some strange intimacy between grief and aliveness some sacred exchange between what seems unbearable and what is most exquisitely alive. Something is cooked into the books of living itself, a sorrow that is part of the Earth's great cycles, the surge from living to dying, from coming into being to ceasing 
to exist. I wish that we were wishing for our children the dearest freshness of deep down things. As the English poet priest Gerard Manley Hopkins once wrote, the dearest freshness of deep down things. Or to move through the world knowing your footsteps matter. Like African-American philosopher Anthony Penn's grandmother would repeat over and over to him. We cannot avoid grief. When we try, we refuse the invitation to lean forward into the full experience of life and instead backslide into our own grave. This invitation of getting comfortable with grief is not something to be undertaken alone. Rugged individualism applied to the field of sorrow is as doomed as the row crops of those Indiana farmers. There is a wise old fairy tale that my ancestors, the Danes and the Swedes, call the Lindworm. And it is a wonderful story which speaks to the important work of grief and the need for accompaniment in order to survive it. Here's how it goes. There once was a king and queen longing to have a child, but they were having difficulty conceiving. Through the help of a wise old woman, the queen became pregnant. But here is the hiccup. The queen did not follow the old woman's magical instructions, and her firstborn was a hideous snake-like creature that the midwife threw out the window and into the woods in disgust. No one knew that she'd done this, not even the queen who was laying there writhing in birth planes. And then the moment later, another child is born, the beautiful twin of the monster. Years later, the young, handsome prince decides it's time to marry. And so he ventures out into the woods to find his bride in a nearby kingdom. And as is so often the case in these wisdom stories, that which is thrown out returns in one shape or another and demands to be reckoned with. And that's exactly what happens. As the prince rides along, he finds his way blocked by his snake brother. The lindworm knows of his handsome twin's quest and says, No bride for thee till there is a bride for me. The prince is befuddled as he heads back to the castle where he finds his parents equally perplexed as he relates this encounter. It is only then that the old midwife reveals what happened on that birthing night and the son she tossed away. With trepidation, the king and queen invite the lindworm into the castle and try to arrange a marriage for him. But to their dismay, every bride they offer 
He eats. Finally, a young woman comes forward, counseled on how to survive her wedding night. She's told to wear seven bed shirts and to bring a bucket of lye and three wire brushes. When the moment comes to consummate the marriage and the lindworm demands that she take off her bed shirt, the young woman replies, I'll take off my shirt if you take off one of your skins. The monster is surprised and says, no one has ever asked me to do this before. There is all kinds of wild howling and commotion as the couple works through seven layers of skin and blouses. <laughs> but in the end, a slimy waif of a man is left. The bride takes the lie and brushes and scrubs him down and finally a handsome prince is revealed. And now the real wedding can begin. This is a story for our personal life-giving work with grief, and I will argue with our communal work as we wrestle with racial justice, making it authentic and alive. Grief is. The lindworm is alive in each of us, hidden or howling in the forest of our being, demanding, demanding to be recognized and devouring every naive and dismissing bride we have to offer. Did you hear the loneliness, the ache in the simple phrase, no one has ever asked me to do this before? This is a clue of how to survive our own wedding night, our own wrestling match with grief. We need trusted communities and circles of care who understand the wild edge of sorrow. Communities with the willingness and covenantal commitment to hang in there with us as we peel off the skin and are willing to get out those wire brushes and scrub us down. Francis Weller writes, grief is an intensely interior process that can only be navigated in the presence of community. This is our call as religious people to move toward the hurt, together, 
grounded in faith and rituals of care in order to consummate a real and flourishing life for ourselves, for our faith communities, for our world. As I stood at that rock outcropping in the Indiana woods, it came clear to me that grief is exactly what is demanded of us, not only as individuals, but as a community of justice seekers. I was struck by that still, small voice emanating from the rock to hold all the beauty alongside all the heartache, all the sweetness and gifts of my mother's life, along with all the wounding and the tragedy all the history of that place, not just some of it, and to take my whole place in grief and gratitude. As a community, we need to recognize that some of us are carrying way too much grief and others are running as far away from it as possible. And I have to admit, I'm a bit of a socialist when it comes to grief. I think it needs to be more equitably distributed. <laughs> we have got to get comfortable with our own grief and make room for the grief of others. So when a person of color actually entrusts me with the truth of their lives, the grief of their life, or thinks enough of me to call me in on my white assumptions or my propensity to universalize, grief, grief is what keeps me open and real. Grief it was, is what keeps me from responding. Don't you think, or I really think it's about class, or it wasn't me, it was my ancestors, or whatever layer of skin I think will protect me at that moment. It makes me stop. Grief makes me stop and just listen. And I'm not talking now about bursting out crying in grief in these moments. And there's plenty of these moments. I'm talking about grief that opens me up to that mysterious connection between what seems unbearable and yet exquisitely alive. Grief allows me to really recognize what is going on to stop, to listen, and be grateful. Grief is being shared, and accompaniment is required. Sadness is with me a lot these days, and the more comfortable I am with that fact of being, the more I realize grief as my savior. It is what is saving my life in my relationship with my beautiful, complicated mother, it is what is saving my life in racial justice commitments and work. Sharing grief is loving, courageous, compassionate work. It is full of commotion and clumsiness, shirts and layers of skin and buckets of lie, and I think it's the only way that we will survive. 
The real wedding awaits. And we have a long night ahead. But we can begin. We can begin. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. <laughs>